The Wicked Library is brought to you by Sanitary Magazine. Sanitary Magazine showcases original horror fiction and dark verse alongside news, reviews, and interviews. Now weekly as of June 1st. SanitaryMagazine.com Also brought to you by Shadows at the Door. Shadows at the Door is an ever-growing collection of haunted stories inspired by the ghastly, the ghoulish, and the macabre. You can enjoy the pleasing terrors and similar content at shadowsatthedoor.com. Also brought to you by HorrorMade.com. From horror haikus to author and filmmaker interviews to original art and dark fiction reviews, HorrorMade.com has a terrifyingly fun collection of dark things that are sure to delight. Warning, the Wicked Library contains adult themes, adult situations, adult language, and graphic depictions of terror, bloodshed, the occasional possession, and your future trips to your psychiatrist, so he or she can assure you it's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. You've been warned, kiddies. <laughs> Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. I am your librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of. Yet, hold on to yourselves, morals and ghouls. This is going to be a dark ride. We leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> The small town of Market Stoneborough is a quaint and rather picturesque example of its type. The inhabitants are genial and friendly, and the streets are lined with attractive, welcoming little shops, neatly kept and dutifully tended, which can easily satisfy the wants of most visitors. The town itself is surrounded by a wide and open expanse of countryside, which offers the prospect of a pleasant afternoon's walk to those inclined toward exercise. It is altogether a most comfortable and commodious place in which to dwell. It is, in fact, a town so like hundreds of others of the kind as to be wholly unremarkable. Not at all the place you would expect to find anything in the least extraordinary, or, shall we say, mysterious. Yet, if you were to turn your steps in the direction of one of the less well-trodden alleys of the town, to which runs just behind the church and opens immediately after the old Royal Oak Inn, you would find a bookshop. In that bookshop, you would find a man by the name of Mr. Jabez Worthington. In the figure of that jovial and good-natured proprietor, there is little to suggest anything of an extraordinary nature. But Mr. Worthington is a man to whom extraordinary things have happened. He could, if called upon to do so, tell a very curious tale, the tale which I shall now relate. It happened that Mr. Worthington was in the habit of purchasing certain volumes from salehouses, with which to supplement his inventory, as well as his own personal collection. 
At one such sale, he managed to obtain, at a modest price, a small assortment of books, lately in the collection of a local scholar, now deceased. The books were delivered in the morning following the sale. However, not until the evening, when the day's business was concluded and he was alone, did he have the opportunity of examining his purchases more closely. Before the fire in the cozy little sitting room above the shop, under the watchful eye of his cat, he began the task of checking and sorting the books. This was a task he always enjoyed, for books were his passion as well as his livelihood. Indeed, he might have been a richer man, financially at least, if he had not been so fond of increasing his own collection. The dusty smell of books, long opened, filled the air as he leafed casually through the pages. There were a few general items of some local interest, and some rarer volumes which he knew would be of interest to one or two of his regular clients. "'Hello?' he cried suddenly. "'What's this?' He was turning one of the books over in his hands and examining it minutely. His cat looked up at him quizzically. Dropping softly from the armchair, she padded over to him. She leapt up on the little table, perching herself precariously atop a pile of books.' "'What have we here, old girl?' he mused, absent-mindedly stroking the creature. "'This book seems rather heavy for its size. "'And see here, there's a lock on it. "'I wonder if it's a diary or something of the sort. "'Perhaps it was put into the sale in error. "'But then it does have a little title on the binding. "'The Darkness Within. "'Well, dear me, it isn't a very cheerful title, is it?' "'The cat tilted her head in acknowledgement and blinked noncommittally. It is strange, but I do not remember seeing it at the sale room. I suppose I must have missed it in my haste to get the particular items on which you are so happily sitting. He picked up the cat and put her gently on the floor. Well, I had best get with the sale room before I make any attempt upon the lock at any rate. He placed the book down on the table and picked up another volume. Seating himself before the fire... With a glass of port, he began to read. The cat watched him for a moment, then leapt back onto the table and resumed her place. She yawned lazily and began to groom herself. Suddenly, her ears pricked up. Something had caught her attention. She gazed intently at the strange book, stretching her nose towards it. She sniffed at it delicately. Upon the instant, she was more alert. She sat upright and gave the book a testing little tap with her paw. She meowed and again tapped the book, harder this time. She was up on all fours, her back arched and her fur bristling. She hissed loudly and began to claw at the book, knocking it down to the floor as she did so. My word, Cleopatra, whatever has gotten into you? Mr. Worthington leapt from his chair with a start, removing the protesting cat from the table, not without a scratch or two to show for it. He picked up the book and examined it narrowly. "'Well, you naughty girl. You don't seem to have caused too much damage.' Cleopatra whined loudly, gave him an indignant look, and curled up before the fire. "'I had better put this out of harm's way, as you seem to have taken such a dislike to it.' He placed the book carefully in his writing desk and locked the draw. There it remained until Mr. Worthington— having received assurances that the book was indeed part of the assortment of books he had purchased, and that there had been no key provided, retrieved it. This time, he took the precaution of putting Cleopatra out first. 
He was just standing at his counter, wondering how to best go about removing the lock, when the door swung open, clattering the bell noisily, and a very flustered man called out, "'Mr. Worthington, I really must insist that you do not open that book!' Mr. Worthington was astonished. His blank expression proclaimed as much. For the other man, removing his hat, made haste to explain himself. "'I am sorry to startle you, sir, but I had to stop you opening the book.' "'Why, whatever for? "'What can it have to do with you?' "'Just this. "'I am Mr. Julius Cartwright, "'son of the late Nathaniel Cartwright, "'the former owner of that book.' "'Ah, I see.' "'Mr. Worthington's face clouded over. "'Or, rather, I don't see. "'You say I must not open the book, "'but you do not say why. "'I am afraid the book was included in the sale in error.' I was away at the time, and I left an agent in charge of making the arrangements. Somehow, I can't imagine how, the book ended up in the books to be sold rather than those that were to go to my storage. I was very clear that it should not be sold. My father left me all his books, which I was to dispose of or keep as I saw fit. However, he made me promise that I would not sell this particular volume, nor should I suffer it to be opened." There was no stipulation of this in his will. He said that he did not wish to draw undue attention to the book in case it should entice someone to break in upon its secrets. So, although I have no legal obligation, I do have a moral one to obey my father's wish. Well, dear me, that is a curious tale. I know that it sounds quite mad. I have always assumed it was some sort of diary, in which case... Why he did not order me to burn it if he feared it being read, I cannot imagine. Well, there it is, sir. You have purchased the book, and I cannot compel you to return it. But I will, of course, recompense you handsomely, should you be willing to do so. Not at all, my dear sir. Of course, you shall have it. You are very good, sir. I thank you. During this exchange, neither man had noticed Cleopatra slip in through the open door. Seeing the book on the counter... She suddenly gave a cry and pounced upon it, worrying at it with her teeth and claws. Taken aback by the sudden ferocity of the animal, neither man moved. The book fell heavily to the ground. Mr. Worthington roused himself suddenly and removed the animal from the room. The door being closed on her, he turned his attention to the book. Both men stared in mute bewilderment. The book lay open on the floor, the lock broken beside it. Between the covers, the pages had been hollowed out. The opening that had been created contained a small walnut box. It was decorated with grotesque and diabolical figures, some dancing and some leering savagely. It was inlaid, too, with a black metallic-looking material, yet it was not like any metal they had ever seen. "'Good heavens!' cried Mr. Worthington. "'No wonder it was so heavy!' "'I... "'Do not understand what this means,' said Cartwright falteringly. Worthington bent forward, hampered rather by his rotund stature, to examine the box. He picked it up gingerly and turned it over in his hands. "'It seems to be locked.' Suddenly he gave a cry of pain and dropped the box on the counter. "'I say, it scratched my hand. "'The corner of the thing is devilishly sharp. "'See here, it has drawn blood.' He held out his left hand, which bore traces of blood on the palm. "'Hello!' cried Cartwright with great excitement. 
What's this? He was leaning over the counter and peering beneath furrowed brows at the box. He pointed to the inlay. Worthington saw at once what had alarmed him. The metallic substance had changed color. Instead of black, it was now red. Blood red. Whatever can be the meaning of it? I do not know. It is very singular. I don't like this. Nor do I, said Cartwright. What should we do? asked Worthington, dabbing at his forehead with his handkerchief. I don't know. I have never seen anything like it. I do not trust it, said Cartwright, drumming his fingers on the counter. My father must have had a good reason for wishing the box to be kept hidden. I do not think it would be wise for us to try to open it. And yet, whatever is inside may have some bearing on the matter. Cleopatra certainly doesn't care for it. I'm sorry? He shook his head slightly, his confusion evident. My cat, Worthington said apologetically. Ah, yes, indeed. I have heard it said that animals are sensitive to certain things which we are not. But what are we to do? asked Worthington imploringly. I cannot help but feel that something has been set in motion here. He gazed at his injured hand. It ached abominably. He swallowed. I feel it too, whispered Cartwright. I think the best thing we can do for the moment is to lock the thing away somewhere safe until we know a little more. Agreed. Then, if you have no objection, I shall take it with me. I shall lock it in my safe. No one can interfere with it there. I have no objection. In truth, he was glad not to have to spend the night with the thing in the house. It disgusted him, rather. Cartwright picked up the box with some trepidation, pulled it back into the book, and left the shop with the promises to return on the morrow. It was a poor night's rest for Mr. Worthington. His hand throbbed and his sleep was plagued by nightmares. Once, he awoke to the sound of voices, screaming as though in torment. Black shapes seemed to fill the room, and he had the strange sensation that he was not alone. Around a quarter past three in the morning, he was awoken again, this time by someone knocking at the door downstairs. Eyelids heavy, and his dressing gown trailing, he stumbled by the light of his bedside candle to the door. "'Who's there? What do you mean by making such a noise at this hour?' he demanded irritably. No answer came. He opened the door a sliver and peered out into the darkness of the early morning. He saw no one. He was about to slam the door in annoyance, when by the pale light of his candle he saw something on the doorstep. Cautiously, he opened the door to its full extent. He looked down at the doorstep to see the box. He blinked uncomprehendingly. How could this be? Was it some sort of trick on the part of Cartwright? He doubted it. The man seemed honest. And besides, what purpose could there be in playing such a trick? He could not simply leave the box where it was. And yet... He was loath to touch it again. Reaching into his dressing gown pocket, he felt for his handkerchief. He pulled it out, and using it to shield his hand, he picked up the box gently, 
he found, to his utter revulsion, that the figures he had noted earlier appeared even more ghastly by candlelight. They seemed to glare spitefully at him with sinister purpose. He locked it away in the desk and returned to bed, resolving to call on Cartwright first thing after breakfast. Oh, how far off did that dawn seem? With his eyes closed sleeplessly against the night, he felt the hours trickle slowly by. He could not sleep, though he was tired enough. Whenever sleep seemed close, he felt himself brought back to consciousness by the distant sound of voices whispering to him. Yet no words could he discern. He became convinced that the source of the sound was within the house. He could hear Cleopatra whining downstairs. She too was troubled. Rising from his bed, he tiptoed cautiously through the house, his senses alert for any sound or movement. Trying to discern the source of the disturbance, all the while fearing an attack upon his life. His quest led him to his sitting room. He pushed the door back as slowly as he dared. The room was empty. The realization dawned slowly and painfully on him that the sound was emanating from within the desk. For a moment, he did not move. Then, muttering an oath and bidding his protesting feet forward, he approached the desk. Leaning forward awkwardly, he listened with great attention. Sure enough, there were voices coming from the desk. Hardly trusting his judgment, he stretched out his shaking hand to unlock the desk. The key slipped in his damp fingers, and he struggled to maneuver it. Finally, it turned and he heard the click of the lock. Summoning all the courage he had left to him, he opened the desk. The noise from within increased a little as he peered in upon the box, though he could still make no sense of the whispered words. He stayed only long enough to establish that the sound was indeed coming from within the box. He scrambled to secure the desk once more, then rushed headlong up the stairs to his room. He was closely followed by Cleopatra, who almost tripped him in her haste to get away. He spent the night clinging to his bedclothes in a fearful vigil. When the dawn finally crawled feebly through the window of his room, it found him a frailer and older-looking man than it had done the day before. After he had dressed, he went straight away to his sitting room. Unlocking the desk, he peered inside to reassure himself that the box was indeed there and he had not been subject to some horrific dream. It was there, exactly where he had left it. It was as he had feared. Over breakfast, he examined the box minutely, not touching it any more than necessary. The daylight had made him braver, but no less cautious. He mistrusted it, and his further examination of it had done nothing to dispel his dislike of the object. The voices had stopped, at least, or he would not have been so bold. The sooner he had returned the loathsome thing to Cartwright, the better. No one, except perhaps Mr. Worthington himself, could have been more astonished than Cartwright to learn that the box no longer resided in his safe to which he had committed it the day before. In point of fact, his first action upon seeing the box in Worthington's possession was immediately to examine the safe, 
He wished to satisfy himself that it really was gone, and there was no possibility of a duplicate. As you may suppose, the safe was empty of its charge, though the book remained. Cartwright was even more perturbed when Worthington related his adventures of the night to him. He did not for a moment doubt the other man's tale, for he too felt the immense dislike for the box. What then were these two gentlemen to do? An object which could disappear from a locked safe only to rematerialize on the other side of town was a quandary to be sure. Clearly, to place it under lock and key was of no use now. Yet, Cotwright reflected, it had lain harmlessly amongst his father's possessions for years and caused no mischief. What then could have provoked it? What had changed? His gaze fell heavily on Worthington. He shivered, but gave no voice to the thought which was now in his mind. He feared for the gentleman. It was decided that Worthington would return to attend to his business, committing the care of the mysterious box once more to Cartwright. Cartwright, for his part, was to continue the examination of the box and his father's papers, in the hope of finding some reference or clue to the object's provenance. Alas, his search proved fruitless, and by the dawning of the evening, he was no nearer a solution to the problem than he had been in the morning. At last, as the shadows closed in around him, his head began to droop as he fought the heaviness of his eyelids. Help me, father, he whispered. Tell me what to do. The papers that he had been reading fell in a scattered heap on the floor. He slumped in his chair as sleep overtook him, and he drifted into a fitful doze. Time passed, and something in the atmosphere of the room shifted. His eyes began to flicker. Mr. Worthington, having been deprived of his previous night's sleep, was ready to retire all the earlier that evening. Though he was not easy in his mind, he found sleep came nonetheless. But, as though in anticipation of the event, he again awoke a little after three o'clock and found himself listening sharply to the silence in the room. Then it came again, the same knocking. This time, though he was no less disturbed, he was, at least, less surprised. With an air of resignation, he threw his dressing gown about him and went downstairs. Sure enough, he found the box, just as he had done on the previous night. This time, it was with something akin to irritation that he snatched up the box and took it indoors. He did not, however, place it in his desk as he had done before. For reasons he himself could not explain where he called upon to do so, he placed the box on a chest of drawers in his room and went back to bed. There was little chance of sleep, however, for the moment he closed his eyes, there came once again that persistent whisper. Though not conscious of having moved, he found himself standing beside the box. The voices within seemed to urge him to action. He found that the words, though no less obscure, seemed now to reach into his mind, to find some common understanding. They spoke to something in him, something primal and long forgotten in his human heart. Open it, they seemed to say. Behold the wonders it 
contains free us and you shall have such rewards as mortal man has never seen. His finger stretched out towards the lid of the box. He felt the absolute conviction that this time it would open to his touch if he would but try. His fingers brushed lightly against the wood. He may well have given in to that strange impulse if it had not been for the particular sensation which greeted his fingers. As his touch lighted upon the painted figures, they seemed to move and writhe beneath his fingertips. Withdrawing with sudden alarm, he came abruptly to his senses. What horror had he been so near to unleashing? He made up his mind at once. At first light, he would set out again to call upon Cartwright. True to his intention, he was at Cartwright's door before the sun's rays had fully chased away the gloom of the desolate night. There was some confusion, and not a little surprise, on the part of the servants to find a disheveled guest thrust upon them at such an hour. It was not long, however, before an equally disheveled Cartwright appeared. "'Good heavens, Worthington! It seems you have had no better night than I! Indeed, I have much to tell you, but you say you have also been troubled.' "'I have. I confess I have passed no easy night. What then has occurred?' "'I was visited by my father,' Worthington started, his jaw dropping slackly. "'I beg your pardon?' I do not know whether you would call it a vision or a dream, but I saw him as clearly as I see you, and he was as real as you are. He tapped the other man on the shoulder with a long finger, as though to reassure himself of the reality of Mr. Worthington. In the dream, or vision if you will, he seemed to be unable to speak to me, yet he was in a desperate state to communicate something to me. He led me out to a lake, out in the woods behind the house, where you were waiting for us. He pointed towards you, and I saw that your hand was dripping with blood. In your other hand, you held the box. Then he turned and looked at me narrowly, as though to be sure I had understood him. Then some invisible force seemed to tear him away, and I was instantly awake. Is this lake far from here? The place is not far. I recognized it very clearly. And yet, there is no lake on that spot. There is just a clearing. There was silence as both men thought on this. But you were going to tell me of your own disturbance, said Cartwright after a moment. Worthington explained, as clearly as he could, what had befallen him and of the strange desire which had come upon him to look within the box. Cartwright's face darkened. It seems to me that the abominable object has formed some connection with you. I suspect something happened that day when you cut your hand on the thing. It is too ghastly to contemplate. We must do something, for I am afraid of what will happen if I should succeed in its persuasions. We must go to that spot which my father showed to me and see what happens. I can see no other course. Nor I, said Worthington resignedly. Then let us go. There is no sense in further delay. As Cartwright said this, he picked up a letter opener from his desk and looked ruefully at his companion. We may need this. The other man said nothing. He merely nodded. He looked blankly at his hands. 
Neither man spoke during the short walk through the woods. Had it not been for their errand, it would have been a pleasant morning. The sunlight twinkled on the white-coated grass, and the sharp scent of frost permeated the air. Worthington observed silently that it would not be long before the winter snows settled on the little town. Cartwright slowed up. It is just through here. He stepped from the path and led Worthington between a cluster of trees and into a large clearing. But now? I'm not sure. I'm certain this is the spot, and yet I cannot account for the lake. The cut on Worthington's hand began to throb. He turned suddenly, startled by a noise behind him. A rook taking off. Nothing more. He turned back to Cartwright. Perhaps we need to recreate your dream as nearly as possible. He looked at his hand and sighed. Hand me the knife. Cartwright looked at him for a moment, but handed over the knife without objection. Worthington took the knife firmly in his right hand, and steadying himself with a deep breath, pressed the sharp edge of the blade firmly into his injured hand. Blood began to well up in his palm. He tilted his hand so the blood dripped downwards and mingled with the frost on the cold earth below. As the first drop hit the ground, he was conscious of a rumbling sensation beneath his feet. He stumbled back. Within seconds, the ground was shaking so violently that he could barely keep to his feet. Cartwright cried out in alarm and snatched his friend away from the spot just in time to see the ground open up, exactly on the spot where the blood had fallen. The two men backed away towards the trees, and the rupture in the earth swelled, covering half the clearing. As they gazed on in a dumbstruck horror, they saw the canyon before them fill with water. It shone in vibrant shades of blue and green, and rippled with hints of silver in the early morning sunlight. Neither man spoke. Worthington reached into his old Gladstone bag, where he had stowed the box. Holding the instrument of mischief aloft, he felt its protesting shudders and heard the violent hissing sounds from within. He knew what he must do. Cartwright could only stare as Worthington strode towards the new-formed lake. With an immense swing of his arm, Worthington threw the box in a high arc into the very heart of the lake. It landed with a loud splash and sank without a trace below the surface of the water. For a moment, all was silent. Not even the song of a bird broke the stillness of the clearing. Then there rose from the lake a fearful noise, which can neither be described nor comprehended. The water turned from tranquil blue to a hideous crimson in an instant, and thence to black. They had barely time to take in the scene before the water returned to its previous hue, and peace returned to the clearing. The calm water of the lake betrayed no hint of what had passed. Perhaps it was a trick of the mind, but Cartwright thought for a moment that he had seen a woman dressed in a long green cloak at the far side of the lake, smiling at them. But the next moment, the image was gone. Worthington looked down at his hand, which no longer stung him. There was not a mark or cut upon it. The skin was unbroken, and the pain had gone from it. They knew then that they were free, 
whatever evil had tried to exert its influence, it was gone now. To this day, neither man can tell you what the meaning of it all was, or why the late Nathaniel Cartwright had not left directions for the box's destruction. They have lived in untroubled ignorance ever since. As for the lake, it still remains if you should wish to see it. The locals say it has magical properties, and that it formed in a place which, at one time, was considered sacred in some way. As is so often the case with these folktales, the origins and precise details have been lost down the generations. Yet, no one passes that place now without a greeting or offering to the kindly spirits who dwell there. Stay tuned for a short Q&A with the author in just a moment. Today's episode featured a story by K.B. Goddard, The Darkness Within. If you'd like more information on K.B. Goddard and her work, please visit kbgoddard.wordpress.com and follow her on Twitter at K.B. Goddard. That's G-O-D-D-A-R-D. Artwork for today's show is created by Jeanette Andromeda. If you'd like more information on Jeanette and her work, please visit horrormade.com and follow her on Twitter at horrormade. Big thanks to Randy D. Rubin for a great story last week and to Alex Murd for the kick-ass art. Don't forget to visit our sponsors, shadowsatthedoor.com, rickertandbeaglebooks.com, horrormade.com, and sanitariummagazine.com. Please share the terror. Share the show. Help us grow. The best support you can give us is to rate us in iTunes. Ratings are free, and they mean a lot to us. Follow us on Twitter, at Wicked Library. Find us on Facebook, and subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, wherever you want to listen, Google, right from the website. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to get great prizes, bonus content, and more. You can sign up for that at thewickedlibrary.com. Now, also, the Wicked Library has something big planned for our Halloween episode. We will actually be recording the Halloween episode in front of a live audience at Rickert and Beagle Books. So, if you're in the area, come on by for a fun celebration. We'll have fresh new stories, probably some prizes to give away, and more. So, if you're interested, shoot us an email, librarian at thewickedlibrary.com and we can get you some more details. Now to plan and put the event together, we'll actually be taking a little break for the next few weeks. Don't worry though, we're still going to have your weekly dose of horror for you with three best of episodes that are sure to terrify. We'll be returning with a huge scary tale by Bram Stoker Award winner Owl Going Back. His award-winning novel Croata draws on his Native American heritage to tell a story of supernatural suspense. The story I'll be reading is entitled Sealed with a Kiss, and it is truly terrifying. And now, K.B. Goddard. So today our guest is K.B. Goddard. We just listened to your fantastic story, and I really wanted to thank you very much for taking the time to sit down with us today and, and also for allowing me to share the story with all the listeners. No problem. That's That's great. I'm glad everyone wants to listen to it. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun to do those, you know, and we have the right audience here. We all have a bunch of horror fans, so. 
Oh, yes. A ready-built horror market. And you're in good company. We had Mark Nixon was on earlier in the season. He's also one of the sponsors for the show. And a couple of weeks ago, we just had Neil Gaiman on. So, Oh, illustrious company. That's right. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you a few questions. Let's start with uh, a little bit about the story. I was curious if this is something that you've been carrying around for a while because it seemed very well formed and, and very well put together. And I have to tell you, very, very British, which I loved about it. <laughs> is this an idea that you've kind of played around with for a long time or is it something that just kind of came to you one day? Actually, that one was a bit sort of off the cuff. Uh, it I'm was impressed. the last story, last story I wrote for my book, and I was sort of like, wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, and it just kind of popped into my head. I suppose it came from I have a bit of an obsession with boxes, mm-hmm. which is a bit of a weird confession. But I don't, there's just something about them, like the sort of they feel mysterious, right? Just by being there, yeah. That's just kind of like what's inside, right? I suppose that's just my, the weird way my brain works. But I kind of thought, hmm, I wonder if I could do something with that. So, it, it, yeah, it just sort of grew out of that, really. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a great little story. And, uh, you know, I, I have kind of a fascination with boxes as well, you know, what's in the box. Whenever I created uh, this little side project that I, that I have uh, for my, my main podcast, which is The Ninth Story, is uh, called The Lift. And uh, it stars a little British girl by the name of Victoria, who... Moved to the United States with her parents back in the early, late, or I'm sorry, late 1800s, early 1900s. And uh, she carries around this mysterious little music box with her. So I have kind of an obsession with boxes as well. So, yeah, they have an air of mystery. It's, yeah. they, they sure do. Not just me. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so I, I wanted to ask you too the, uh, the characters, whenever you, whenever you put those into the story, I mean, were these characters that, Again, you kind of borrowed from from people that you know in real life, or did they come kind of with the story? Um, I'd say they came really with the story. I I knew I wanted to do a little bit more with character because I hadn't necessarily in the other stories in my book, they hadn't necessarily had as much sort of character development, I suppose, because with short stories, you know, mm-hmm. you don't always have as much as you do in a novel. So I wanted to kind of add a little bit more, at least with the 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 bookshop owner mm-hmm. i wanted to give him sort of a, i wanted him to feel a bit more real a bit more three-dimensional so he kind of grew out of that but yeah they not really based on anyone i know luckily. okay <laughs> <laughs> not sure they'd be thrilled if they were <laughs> <laughs> not consciously anyway right <laughs> consciously <laughs> right no i mean he's definitely a he's he's definitely got a, a a really fun personality and uh you know with the cat and everything it's just comfortable you feel comfortable with this this guy. Yeah, I mean, if anything, actually, I suppose I kind of wanted to give the cat a bit of a personality as well, which came across, because cats have that sort of disdain. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to get that across with the cat. I wanted it to be sort of like a fun element to kind of break the tension. Sort of in the way M.R. James does, everything's always in a nice sort of, everything's nice and it's British countryside and everything's pretty and then something horrific happens. Yes, yes. So I kind of wanted to have that sort of quirky elements in there. So the cat had a personality. Very much so. I like that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Writing obviously is is pretty tough work. It's something that requires a lot of tenacity and, and a lot of focus and a lot of energy. What keeps you coming back to writing and enjoying it in the process? I guess I've always had kind of a thing for, as obviously we'll be able to tell from my story, it, it's Victorian era. 
it's set in that kind of era. And I suppose I've always had a little bit of an obsession with sort of 19th century books. I sort of grew up reading Sherlock Holmes and M.R. James and that sort of thing. So that's sort of 19th century, early 20th century. I guess I like the challenge of finding something that's not already been done. You think ghost, you think somebody popping out from a cupboard in a white sheet. <laughs> you know, you want to... So I like I like the way M.R. James kind of mixes things up. Then most of his stories aren't sort of traditional ghosts as such. There's something different. So I like that sort of challenge of trying to find something different within that genre. And why I had to make it so hard for myself by making it Victorian, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you write what you're drawn to, you know? Yeah, I mean, bizarrely, in some respects, I actually find it easier to write in that style because I've kind of read so much of that stuff that I found when I was writing I was sort of almost becoming Victorian style in the writing (laughs) right (laughs) if you steep yourself in it long enough it definitely colors your style and your writing which is very cool because I really love that old high style of writing and it's not used a lot anymore and it's almost kind of sad that it's been lost but it's nice whenever you know I run across a story like yours that harkens back to that and brings that style forward I love that style of language because obviously language evolves and that's great but there's there's something about that kind of formal style of the Victorian literature. And there's so many great words that we just don't use anymore. Yes. I, li- I like playing with that. I like using different words. I don't sort of put a lot of historical references into the stories. I tend to like to make it feel Victorian through the language rather than sort of liberally sprinkling historical facts in there. <laughs> I, put, I put a few, obviously, I've got to admit, I don't want them all walking around with electric headlamps and things, but <laughs> I like to do it through the language rather than just layering it on with a trowel, so to speak. No, that's very cool. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. I love that. Now, when did you know, you mentioned a lot of a lot of time spent reading some of the older Victorian classics, uh, you know, the Holmes and M.R. James. When did you first find that you wanted to write your own? Was there a certain story or was it just like a certain point in your life when you're like, I'm just, I want to do my own version of this type of thing? I suppose I'd, I'd always had a kind of idea that like a lot of people have is, oh, I'd love to write a book one day, <laughs> that kind of thing that a lot of people sort of harbor. Um, but I was actually, I was doing a creative writing course with the Open University over here. Mm-hmm. And for our final assignment, like the three last assignments were working towards one big project. And I thought, well, I've done all these other stories that, you know, they were all right, but I wasn't, wasn't that sold on them myself. They were, they were okay. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I want to do something different. So I thought, I oh, know, I'll do a Victorian ghost story like you do. <laughs> so one of the stories that's actually on Shadows at the Door at the moment is the one called Reflections on a Malady. Great story. And that actually started off as, it was actually my OU assignment, my end of course assignment. Oh, wow. It's been rewritten and redrafted since then, obviously, but... Uh, that's how it started, really. It was sort of an OU project, and I just wanted to do something a bit different. So I thought, ghost story. And I'll make it Victorian, because they're the best. Of course they are. So much better. So much better. Uh, it's fantastic. That's great. You took something from that raw form at the end of your class and managed to transform it into what it is now. Because I haven't read your original version. I'm sure it's great. But what it is now, I can tell it's something that's very, very polished. And I really enjoyed that one. Oh, thank you very much. You're quite welcome. So <laughs> it's good to hear. Yeah. And when you're writing these, what is it that you want to make the reader feel? Is there something that you're they're aiming for, or does it vary by the story? I don't know that I'm sort of aiming for any sort of particular feel with each one individually. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm kind of going for that feeling of 
unease, I suppose, which the Victorians did so well as part of recreating the style is I wanted that that feeling of everything's normal. It can be sort of a nice, pleasant day in the countryside. And then there's that little suggestion that, you know, maybe there's something more going on than just birdsong and, and sunny days. You know, there's something lurking in the background. That something horrible could grow out of even the nicest situation. And that kind of feeling of unease that comes with sort of gaslit streets and things like that, you yeah. know, the, the London pea supers and electric lights aren't that scary. <laughs> no, you're right. It, it absolutely is a big difference. There's kind of more of an atmosphere with the Victorian one. So I kind of, that's the kind of feel I'm going for, is that sort of creeping unease. I don't really do a lot of blood and guts horror. Yeah. That's not, that's not really the sort of feel that I'm going for. There's plenty of that out there already, and that's right. that's great in its own way. But yeah, I kind of wanted to do something a little bit different. I do always like the unease concept. There's something about just that unease feeling that kind of reminds you all of what we've built in terms of civilization is just kind of a layer on top of something very deep and dark that we don't understand. And we like to fool ourselves into this illusion of comfort but behind that and beyond that is the mysterious and the unknown. And that unease kind of is part and parcel of that. I'm fooling myself, but now I'm being reminded of the truth. And that's scary. Yeah, exactly. It's like we've sort of driven the shadows away with the electric lights and the TV and the radios. If you turn all that off and you're on your own in a darkened room and you're reading this story, <laughs> are you going to feel nervous <laughs> or are you going right. to feel happy? That's the kind of... Without yeah. all the modern trappings, you know, what's out there lurking in the darkness that we've forgotten about, yes. that kind of thing. Exactly. And you've done that really well, so I really like that. And that's, I think that's kind of what ties into, like, what's hidden inside a box type of thing. Well, the box is containing all this, and it looks safe, but once you open it, beware. Yeah, exactly. I wanted it to have that kind of feeling of, because it's never really explained what exactly Mr. Cartwright's father was up to. Right. <laughs> it's like, what does he know? What was going on? Yes. What kind of sort of dark things has he been experimenting with in the past, coming back to bite his son now? What is that layer of the something sinister lurking? Yes, ab absolutely. You nailed it. Exactly right. Do you have any tricks or tips that you use when you edit? Is there anything that helps you find the true story that sometimes is hidden in our first and second drafts of writing? I do my editing in a bit of a strange way. I tend to try and get a story sort of almost complete in my head before it starts to come out on paper. So it's almost like it's been through the first edit before it even makes it on paper, which is one of the... <laughs> it's not a way I'd recommend of doing it because <laughs> I... <laughs> my inner editor is a little bit on the bossy side. That's that little voice there that's going, really, you're going to write that? Really? I am my own worst critic, so I'll get halfway through and I'll be like, I don't know what to do now. <laughs> So I wouldn't necessarily recommend doing it that way, but I basically I think the best thing to do is when you've written your first draft is give it some space. Mm -hmm. That's the best thing you can do because that way, because otherwise you find that you're just reading what you expect it to say. Right. It's coming across it to you in the way that you wanted it to come across because you're seeing what you wanted to write, not what you have written. So I always find it's best if you can give it a couple of weeks or more if you've got the patience. <laughs> <laughs> right, to let it breathe a little bit. Yeah, and then come back and try and read it as a reader rather than as the writer. What I try to do in mine is because obviously they're historical ones, mm -hmm. I'll go away and maybe read a little bit of Conan Doyle or something like that and get the sort of the language 
again, and I'll come back and read it and think, could this pass as a Victorian story? Is this up to the mark in that respect? And yeah. yeah, I try and read it as a reader rather than as me. Yeah, that's really good <laughs> advice. And, and you're right. It's hard to do that if you don't give it a little bit of time to breathe because you become kind of blind to what's there. I mean, stuff that I've sat aside for six months or more and come back to, I'm surprised sometimes by things that happen. Even it's like, I don't remember writing that. <laughs> I love it when that happens. Oh, I don't remember that. <laughs> but no, it's not just a case of coming back and seeing the mistakes as well. Sometimes you'll write something and you don't feel happy with it. Mm-hmm. And you think, oh, it sucks. My work's terrible. No one's ever going to read it again. And you'll come away and you'll go back in a couple of weeks and go, well, actually, that's quite good. I didn't mind. <laughs> it's not exactly. as bad as I thought it was. So it can work in your favor. It's definitely, give it some breathing room. It's definitely my top tip anyway. Excellent. Excellent. And when you're writing these, do you visit locations? Do you go out and I know you said you, you get yourself refamiliarized with the language and kind of make sure that that's the way that your mind's working. But do you go out and visit any of these historical locations or um, that type of thing to, to get the feel for the settings as well? Well, luckily for me, I do actually live in the countryside already. So in terms of that, that's quite handy. I don't tend to base it so much on real places. Mine tend to be sort of fictional. I may kind of absorb it. Yeah, I I wouldn't say I sort of go out and visit particular historical locations. If I do happen to be somewhere, I'll sort of have the antenna on for anything that I could use. That might be quite good. (laughs) Yeah, Makes sense. When you're sitting down to write, and you mentioned that you have kind of this very strict internal editor even before you get to the point of putting it on the page, I imagine that that can make it a little difficult when you are writing to try to fix it as you're going, wondering if that sometimes makes the the writing experience a little difficult, and and if so, what you do when you're facing a difficult writing session or the ideas aren't flowing as well as you'd like them to. That is one of my weaknesses as a writer in that respect is I'm quite a slow writer I'm not very prolific because I am so Mm self-critical so quite often I will hit a block and it's just like what do I do now but again it's just I just have to kind of give it space until it budges or I'll start reading books of local ghost stories and legends and things to see if anything leaps out to kind of inspire me to move forward Uh, I do tend to as you do edit as I go especially if if I've got stuck. I know a lot of people say not to do it, not to go back to the beginning and start tweaking before it's finished because you'll never finish it. But for me, that kind of helps if I go back to the beginning and and tweak it a bit and I feel like the beginning is stronger. I feel like I've got a better foundation Mm -hmm. to be building on. So in that respect, I kind of go against all the advice. (laughs) (laughs) I do everything backwards. (laughs) So yeah, I, I do. I go back and I... I kind of edit as I go or I tweak and I'll play with a problematic sentence that's been bothering me and then just kind of hope that things don't block and do something else quite often. Just leave it alone for a day or two and then come back to it, you know, when you're not feeling quite so frazzled. Yeah, it does give you a little bit of forward momentum if you go back and fix something that you can actually fix. And I think that sometimes just from a mindset point of view, that that helps to feel like, okay, I've accomplished something. Now I can move forward with the story. It's like building on the foundation. It's got to be solid. Exactly. (laughs) For me, anyway, I know it's not how all the books would recommend doing it. (laughs) And that's one of the things I always like whenever I talk to authors about their writing is everybody has so many different methods and it's all about what works best for you. But it's nice sometimes to hear other authors say, well, this is what I do in this situation, because sometimes it gives you an idea for, you know, I should try that. But I know I spent a lot of time 
reading books on writing and method and, and that type of thing. And eventually what happened is I was like, well, I, I learned a few things, but really what I've learned is that this is the way that I write and I need to write the way that I write or it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you can read all the advice books you want out there, but in the end, every writer is different and you've just got to find what works for you because what works for me isn't necessarily going to work for somebody else and vice versa it's just you've got to find your own routine your own tip (laughs) that's very true your own method (laughs) so what are some of the things that you're working on that folks can watch out for any things that you have coming up or new books coming out or anything like that at the moment i am editing my next ebook which will be the haunted chamber and other stories excellent and there will be a paperback edition combining A Spirited Evening and Other Stories, which was the first book Mm -hmm. and the new one. I'm hoping, fingers crossed, to have those out on Halloween. Oh, wow. It seemed like a good date to do. So I'm I'm aiming for Halloween. I'm hoping to have the e-book available for pre-order before then, but uh, I'm working on that at the moment. Excellent. Well, when you do, make sure you let me know and I'll update links and things on the writer page that I have set up for you on the Wicked Library so folks can find all that stuff. Oh, great. Thank you. Excellent. And where can folks find you and your work and interact with you if they're interested in finding out more about you and your work? I'm on Twitter, KB Goddard. And I'm also on Facebook, again, facebook.com forward slash KB Goddard. You'll also find me on Goodreads and as my Amazon authors page as well, obviously. Excellent. And I'm on WordPress as well. I'm everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Just Google you, right? (laughs) That seems to be the popular phrase these days. Just Google me. You'll find me. (laughs) Just Google me. I'm there. (laughs) And of course, we'll have links to all your stuff in the show notes for this show. I really, really appreciate you sharing it with us. It was great to talk to you. And it was absolutely wonderful to have an opportunity to read your story and share it with all the listeners. Thank you very much. You're quite welcome. All works read in this audio recording and associated music and artwork are copyright of their respective creators and may not be used in any form without their permission. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of the librarian was performed by Nelson W. Piles. The voice of Victoria Bigglesworth Hayes was performed by Amber Collins. The Wicked Library theme was written by Anthony Rousick and performed by Novus. All other music in this episode was performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and used with his permission. Check the show notes for titles and credits. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. Producer, Daniel Foytek. Program director, Caitlin Marceau. Executive producer and creator, Nelson W. Piles. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at www.thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 614. Until next time, this has been Daniel Foytek. Go ahead. Leave the lights on. The spirits in the box will still be